0: What an honor and joy it is to be with you this morning and to be able to get into God's Word. Um, I hope you brought your Bible. If you did not, we have some supplied for you right in front of you. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, where we have been in this series, and I'm going to invite you to turn to chapter 3. We're going to be thinking about and processing the message of chapter 3 and chapter 4. And if you didn't have one, and there are some Bibles provided for you, and those Bibles, I think you'll find it on page 568 and following. So again, if, um, if you are new with us and you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, we'd love to give you one, a free one after the service. Just let us know. We'd be happy to give you one. So we have been in this really interesting series about erosion, specifically those things that can erode our faith to take us away from all that God has called us to do and to be that can rob us of our impact in the world and what God has missionally called us toward. And um, Isaiah has been this fascinating book with these messages, these powerful themes that address this specifically, the vitality and the strength of our relationship and the things that would hinder us from being close to the Lord. Um, you know this, hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, that we are called with this fantastic mission. And it's articulated as Jesus speaks to his disciples um, just before he ascends in Matthew 28 with these words. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our shared mission, and it's not just a mission for the trained professionals or for those people who feel like they've got a special gift or ability. It's not for those specifically who are the super Christians, it's for all of us. I was talking with a friend of mine, Natalie, actually this week. And she was saying, did you notice that in verse 17? Where it says, and some doubt it. And it's talking about the 11. right? Those disciples who had been with them and still struggling, wrestling with doubts and confusions about what God had for them and who exactly Jesus was. It's a message for us, even for those of us who would say, I don't know enough about the Bible to be able to really share my faith with someone. Or I'm not close enough with Jesus or I've failed him before, and I'm not sure that I could do this. And how could I possibly pass on all the answers about Jesus when I'm still wrestling with them myself? And you shy away from the mission. But it's a mission in which Jesus says in verse 19, go. It's a command. It's emphatic and implies that there's an element of defying our comfort zone, which is hard, right? That God would call us and move us out and to get out of our safe places and get off our tails and engage people around us proactively. It moves us to action across the boundaries outside of church on a Sunday morning and seeping into our neighborhoods and the place where we work and our schools and the place where we like our favorite coffee or whatever it might be. Wherever God takes us is where our mission is. And yet there are all kinds of things that can impact our effectiveness at doing it. And specifically Isaiah is going to raise a theme here in Chapters 3 and 4, that's really significant, especially for those of us who long to fully live for God and to embrace our place in his world and to protect those things that can corrode our relationship with him. So for a deeper look, let's turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 3. It says this, beginning... For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and expert in charms. And I will make boys their their princes, and infants shall rule over them. Verse 5. And the people will oppress one another, every one of his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak? You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be your rule. That day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people." Now, Isaiah is going to use this message to warn his people of something very significant, incredibly actually threatening that God is going to do. He's going to take away all those supports that were most significant to them, the things they cherished the most that were propping them up. The Lord is going to remove those false supports from their lives. We see the message there in verse 1. Specifically, God was going to remove the things they relied on, like basic necessities of food and water. Verse 1. And the reliance on human leaders who had created a structure of government and safety. That's verses 2 through 5. In short, God was going to take these things away, and what was going to result was going to be chaos and desperation. But why? Why were they going to lose these things and people that they had come to rely on? Why would God do that in the first place? Isaiah answers it in the first answer in verse 8 where it says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Their speech and their actions were revealing their heart how far away they had fallen from god they had left god completely out of their picture instead of turning around once they realized oh man i i should turn back to the lord now they kept ignoring him and refusing to draw closer and they instead walked farther and farther away not sure how to get back in fact not even wanting to get back i'm not sure how you came this morning Um, Where you are in terms of your relationship with the Lord. But Isaiah is speaking out this powerful message about things that happen inside of us. The erosion of our faith. Where we can progressively walk away from the Lord. Where we get to the place where Israel was. Where we no longer seek his forgiveness or experience his grace. But listen. God is full of grace. God is full of forgiveness. And anytime time we put on the brakes and turn our attention back to him, he welcomes us back. There are very few of us, I think, here this morning that would openly acknowledge, like, yeah, we're defying God, right? And yet that's the language that is used by Isaiah. Yeah, sometimes we ignore him throughout our day. We've got a lot of other things pressing on us. And sometimes we do struggle with all the things that he wants us to do, the conversations he wants us to have, so we ignore that. And sometimes we struggle with obedience, and we don't want to do things that he's calling us to do, and so we refuse to do that. But we wouldn't characterize ourselves as God defiers, would we? I don't even actually know any of my neighbors, many of them who don't walk with God, as people who would embrace being a God defier. And yet that's how Isaiah calls these people out. It's where they had ended up, according to Isaiah, and it begs the questions. If our speech and our actions are contrary to God's design for us, what does it say about our heart? How would you characterize your own heart this morning? According to the accounts in Kings and Chronicles, Israel had arrived at this place one moral compromise at a time, one step at a time. They'd got there as one more thing was added to their lives that crowded out the priority of living close to the Lord. And over time, they abandoned what was most important at one point to their lives. No longer living, as I think Isaiah does in a fascinating description, in his glorious presence. And I believe that's a key phrase, his glorious presence. The Bible gives us great news. That we're invited, every one of us, regardless of what we've done in the past, regardless of what we're doing right now, into his presence. That he's a God who welcomes us with great grace and would love to have a relationship with us and seeks to draw us into his presence and for us to enjoy that place, to delight in it. That's actually what we were made for. But what does that look like? In chapter 6, Isaiah describes an experience that he had. It's a remarkable experience where he comes face-to-face with a holy God. He's stripped down of all his own pretensions and stuff, cries out to God. He experiences God in his presence and holiness, and he's undone, and then he receives God's forgiveness and grace and calling to go out. It's a remarkable account. But my experience hasn't been like Isaiah's, like in chapter 6. I haven't had that kind of experience but I have experienced the presence of God. I wonder about you. Has that, been, has that been your experience? Is it your experience presently where you'd say, yeah, you know what, Ron? I'm experiencing the presence of God, and it's powerful in my life. If not, this is a good check, a good place to, to ask yourself why. Why am I not actually experiencing the sweet, glorious presence of God. Verse 9 explains why that decision, that group of decisions that they had been making, was impacting this, impacting them. It says this For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. They have intentionally walked away from God, knowing what they did, and they're responsible. And to drive the point home, Isaiah uses this example from their history. Genesis chapter 19, where people had walked so far away from God that they fell under the judgment of God and were disciplined and Sodom was destroyed. It was a chaos. It was a set of things, circumstances happening in that city in Sodom that led to absolute chaos and ruin. And their moral compromise was judged by God. And that's That's a hard message for us to swallow sometimes when we look in the Bible and think about God stepping in as the discipliner, as the corrector, as one who would hold us accountable. Because when our sin's exposed, how do we naturally respond? How do you naturally react when all of a sudden your sin, your brokenness is made known? Do you blame other people for it? Do you try to avoid it and hide it? Distance yourself from God. Isaiah's message is really clear. Our actions have consequences with God. Our actions have consequences with God. And Isaiah is going to spell this out for us, starting verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Verse 11 Woe to the wicked! It shall be ill with them, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, Infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, your guides mislead you and have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now, let me put the brakes on just for a moment. For those of you who probably struggled with some of the language and turned it off, as soon as you've sensed that this might be a misogynistic God, right, what's the problem with women being leaders? Here's what's being said, the point being made, that all the men who were leaders in that culture were going to be judged. They're going to be wiped out, actually. It's part of God's judgment in battle. They would lose their lives, and chaos would ensue. And it would be as a result of their defiance of God. Their whole society was going to feel the effects of their choices to leave the God who loved them. And he'd given them all of these supplies that they had. And now they were going to be stripped away, and they were going to be led to a place where they were desperate. And here Isaiah picks up this running theme throughout his book, that one evidence... That we have fallen away from the Lord is a failure to have compassion on the poor. Now, isn't that interesting? Right? He could have chosen all kinds of different moral failures because they were full of them. He could have zeroed in on any kind of sin, or struggle, but it's this that they were failing to have compassion on the poor. He makes his point when people walk away from the Lord, the lack of compassion for the poor is often a chief indicator. Isn't that fascinating? Now, that, that doesn't mean that those people who do have compassion on the poor are naturally walking with the Lord. Because I know all kinds of people who are compassionate for the poor and don't have a relationship with God, right? And it doesn't mean that if you're compassionate for the poor, you get extra brownie points with God. That's not what it's saying either. Here's the message that's fascinating, I think, that's being taught here. What is true is that compassion is an outward expression of God's glorious presence. That is, when we're living life in intimacy with him, close to him, he rubs off on us. God rubs off on us. And in turn, we rub off on others. What's near and dear to the heart of God, clearly in the book of Isaiah, repeatedly, it's that we are people with compassion for the poor. And the evidence that was happening in these people's lives were, is that they were actually taking advantage. They were exploiting the poor. And Isaiah makes the point that what's really going on is not just this action. It's a heart. It's a long ways away from what's intended for that heart to enjoy God's glorious presence. We can be sure of this, that the Bible tells us that God loves and values every person even those people who may seem unlovely to us. And it's because his heart is bent to the poor and that he hates oppression and exploitation, that those who are near and dear to him or close to him reflect his image. And it comes oozing out of them. Compassion for those who are disadvantaged. Now, at this point, Isaiah's gonna take what looks like a little turn in the message he gives. This is verse 16. But I want you to pay attention to the bigger message as Isaiah weaves it out. So here's the word of the Lord, starting verse 16. But the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks. That's an interesting little phrase is isn't it? Glancing wantingly with their eyes and mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Interesting. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts that, that is they will be laid naked. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings, and nose rings, the vessel robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt, of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty, he gets really specific, doesn't he? He takes everything that they had been wearing, every fashion statement, everything that mattered to them about their physical outward appearance, and he said it's all going to be stripped away. It's all going to be taken away. And, verse 25, your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn, empty, she shall sit on the ground. And seven women, verse 1 of chapter 4, shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, we'll eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. The message helps us understand this powerful theme that Isaiah is speaking out, that people who walk away from God's presence and counsel, they become self-absorbed. They become self-absorbed. Pride looks in a mirror and looks away from God, and it erodes. And as the book of Proverbs says, it always leads to a fall. And so Isaiah gets very graphic about the fall that is coming. The women that Isaiah describes here, I put all their attention and priority on looking good and using the latest fashion trends. And so in poetic, harsh language, Isaiah paints a picture of the false pursuit of fashion coming to a ruin, that he's going to strip them away and expose them, and they would be debased. Look at the language. The Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. The Lord will take away the finery. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of well-set hair, baldness, branding. Instead of beauty. It all will be taken away, the Lord is saying. And before you assign this word of judgment to those caught up just in their physical appearance and think, well, that's not my issue. I, I I'm not a, like a fashion statement, so I don't have to worry about that. I don't have a nose ring, right? Look, look again. In the Bay Area, I believe that we are consumed with an appearance, though maybe it's not just about fashion, but it is about reputation and credibility. We fear what other people might think about us or how we're behaving. We have obsessively manicured social media platforms and we present enviable lives in the hope that it'll gain us some kind of social currency and we scrub our appearance for others. But there isn't a moment where that misleads God, where he's fooled with our heart and what's going on actually with us. According to Isaiah, not only would these women lose the things that they relied on to make them beautiful, They're going to lose their men. They're going to die in battle. And in that day, all their security and in that culture, all their identity would be stripped away. Verse 25, your men shall fall by the sword. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, seven women will take hold of one man. They're going to be desperate and lost. Now, here's the big picture message. All the things that they had falsely put their confidence in was going to be failing them and be taken away. You and I, we were intended to live first and foremost, enjoying the glorious presence of God. We were made for that. And for those of us who've experienced the grace and mercy of God when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and we trusted Him and His work on the cross alone to heal us and forgive us, we know this, that we will eternally experience His presence. And that today we're intended to enjoy it, to live in it. But our sin, just like Israel's sin in Isaiah's day, leads us away. It's been that way ever since the beginning. Right? Genesis chapter 3 is this picture of Adam and Eve who once enjoyed the glorious presence of God. Think about how sweet that was, right? In the garden. And verse 8 says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. Uh, something that had happened to them repetitively, and, repetitively and they, they had taken glory in, delighted in, taken joy in. But this is the moment after they had sinned, after they had violated God's desire for their life, and they had walked away and defied him. And the man and the wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. How how foolish can you get, right? Think that you can avoid God, the sovereign God who sees all things and knows all things, that you can avoid him. And yet we do this just like Adam and Eve, right? They were defying the glorious presence of God in this moment. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Isn't that a great question? Where are you? Now, he knew. He knew. He just wanted Adam to acknowledge it where he was. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Our sin leads us away from the presence of God. But listen really carefully this is not the end, it wasn't the end for Israel, and it's not the end of our passage this morning. Because Isaiah is filled, yes, with warnings, but also with words of marvelous hope in the midst of the wreckage caused by our false confidences and misplaced faith. There is deliverance. So listen to the words, starting in verse 2 of chapter 4. In that day, he said... That is the day when hope seems lost and the consequences of our actions are keenly felt in that moment when we're broken and desperate and have come to that place where God wanted us all along, where we should be desperate for him and not leaning into other supports. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, and when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud of day, a cloud by day and smoke, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat. For refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Isaiah is saying, calamity is not the last word from Yahweh. It's not God's last word to us. Wreckage and desperation and judgment. That's that's not the end. There's some amazing themes Isaiah is going to touch on here and then in the book, Weave Out for Us. And the first is this that he opens up in verse 2 he's talking about the branch of the Lord. It's a description of the Messiah, Jesus. And if you know some about Isaiah, you know that repeatedly he's going to return back to this theme. But that specific word picture for us is used by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah, a name for Jesus that regards his descent from David, his humble conditions, a branch being a tender thing that denotes Christ's humiliation on earth, that he grew up as a tender plant before the Lord, Scripture says, and was contemptible in the eyes of men, and it's called a branch of the Lord because he rose up and bore amazing fruit. This is the story told to us in Zechariah 3.8 and Jeremiah 23 and Isaiah 11. And the branch was beautiful because it was laden with this great fruit of righteousness and reconciliation and peace and pardon and adoption and sanctification and eternal life. And all those who would connect themselves to the branch find life in them. Now you see where Jesus is going with that message in John 15, right? I am the branch. So Isaiah opens up this great theme of hope, of life in the midst of our desperation, that he would send the Messiah so that we would understand and know the presence of God. And the second theme that he sounds here in Isaiah chapter 4 is with this phrase, he who is left in Zion. It's a theme of the remnant, the people that God would take and he would love and he would hold on to and never allow to slip out of his hands. Four three says, those who are left. And it comes from the same root as the Hebrew word remnant. And that's a theme that Isaiah will return to in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 37. And that the prophets Micah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah would also use, speaking about a people whom God would rescue and save who would find their only refuge and security in him. And then there would be this protection. He speaks of a canopy, a protection around them for the people who would become a worshiping community. And notice how he ends the message here in chapter 4 with a picture of the glorious presence of God. So the people of Israel, when they're wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness, how did they know that God was there? God knew that they were slow, right? Just like he knows we're slow. And he needed obvious signs. So he gave them a cloud by day to follow and a pillar of fire by night. It was a clear sign of his glorious presence and power to lead them. So Isaiah is using that imagery for us to know that this God is drawing us back even when we have gone away from him, even when Israel had left him, that he would strip everything away and bring them back, that would bring them back to his glorious presence because God's glorious presence is where he wants us to be. Isaiah 50.10 says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Come back. Now, step with me back just a little bit and see the arc of the whole text, okay? What we just thought about, chapters 3 and chapter 4. At first, Israel has this pile of things that they're leaning into that were supporting their lifestyle. They had secure homes. They had basic necessities. They had a stable government, law and order, plenty of wealth to enjoy high fashion. And yet, they had abandoned what was most important to them. God's glorious presence. So one by one, God removes all of those false things from them. That's the story of chapter 3. The story of chapter 4 is that God's not finished with them yet. He's not finished with you yet, regardless of where you find yourself. And he's holding out hope. This conclusion in chapter 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains from Jerusalem from its midst. That God would come and forgive and cleanse. That's what he does. And he's going to do that through the Messiah. Specifically, that's what we know to be the gospel. That God loves and forgives and draws every person back to himself. And he does that through the power of the cross. Because God's glorious present breathes life into our life and faith and impact. That's what he does I love the picture at the very end where it's like they had all this stuff and then God took it all away and then they find themselves camping. Camping around Mount Zion with nothing much to enjoy except for the presence of God. Except for his great glory. And that's the best place they could possibly find themselves. I don't know when you have experienced the presence of God, if you have. Or one that's been most powerful. For me, typically, it's when I'm away from things. When I'm away from all the other distractions in my life. Actually, I love to go camping. So if I'm out camping, you see the canopy of stars out there. And you see the majestic beauty of God. Perhaps for you, it happens in a very different setting. But what God is calling us to, chiefly, above all other things, is to prioritize that place where we experience and take joy in the glorious presence of God and step near to him, draw near to him, Scripture says, and he will draw near to you. There is hope, even if you've walked away from him. And if that's your experience and you came this morning and you've been living life a long ways away from him, there's hope for you. Because God is a God of hope and forgiveness and draws you back to himself. So all you have to do, really, is get honest with the Lord. And confess that before him. Just pray out to him. Lord, I need your forgiveness. I need to come to you. I need to give my life to you. I want to follow you. I want to experience you in my life. The Bible is clear that when you come to that place, he makes you new. And he gives you his presence through the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who have experienced the presence of God and yet have prioritized all kinds of other things this last week. And what you need most right now is to experience his presence. I would just invite you to step in faithfully this week as you thank him for all his goodness in the middle of Thanksgiving. Start your days just reminding yourself and seeking out the Lord of the importance of living and enjoying his glorious presence because there's nothing like that, and you are built for. Let me pray for you, please. Father, thank you for this good word. Thank you for the challenge of it. Lord, you know us. It's so easy for us to get distracted and walk away and then and then wonder if we can ever come back. And yet, you welcome us open-handedly back with great grace and forgiveness. I thank you that your word is a word of hope and that you love us. And I pray, Lord, this week, that we would uniquely experience and take great joy and delight in your presence and it would rub off on us and be evident the way that we speak and the things that we do and the way that we care for others. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory and all God's people Say, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.